Mm. A narrative, a storyline, plot, summary, way of thinking, a paradigm, a belief system. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a narrative. And uh, if you could bring me down a little bit more, because you know my New Yorker comes out about halfway through the sermon. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man, listen to this, was the greatest of all the people of the East. So he's living in the land of Uz, which is essentially a, a, an area of, of the land of Ur, essentially. And he is the wealthiest, famous celebrity, if you will, of all of the East. Pretty powerful. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Wow. Chapter 2. Verse 9, then, Noah's, uh, Noah. <laughs> then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Elphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namatite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief very great. All right, so what do we have here in these several chapters or several verses of Job? And for the rest of the narrative of Job, you are witnessing in the book of Job a paradigm shift, a narrative shift, a shift in the way of thinking. Okay, we take a look at this. It's this. We open up with the book of Job. We have who Job is. He's prosperous. He's wealthy. Things are good. He's famous. He has more wealth than anyone else in the East. We see his character. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. Satan shows up, and we most likely know right, the, the, more of the story of Job. But really what happens here, as I feel the Lord is, is speaking to us today, is this. Um, he's going through a hard time. And even his wife is like, curse God. 
And he's like, no, don't you know that if we're going to accept the good things, then we also have to accept the bad things that happen on earth as well. And uh, uh, I'm not going to curse God. But then what happens here is then his friends show up. And for seven days and seven nights, they're sitting there in quiet. Uh, and the friends are going to about to release their advice. They release their advice. And we know Job never curses God, but he begins to question God pretty thoroughly. But I, without getting into the depths of the weeds of Job, which we might a little bit later in the sermon, it's really this. What we see here is that there is going to be a change in the way in which Job thinks. And it happens because of his friends. And his friends are telling him a different narrative than the narrative of God. And by doing that, by changing a narrative, what's happening here is you're changing a way in which we think. A complete paradigm shift of thinking we see in the book of Job. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is this. Um, I think unless you have been living underneath a rock, the last several years, I would say probably a good five to seven years, the last five to seven years, there has been an attempted, an attempted paradigm shift on earth, particularly in America. You got to get this? This is, uh, is going to be, I, I mean, I think one of the most important words of our generation, not that I'm giving it, but this notion of a paradigm shift. Let's, let's, let's see what I'm talking about here, right? America or the earth in some regards was living in one type of thinking, right? We, always, we live in paradigms. And there are times on earth when paradigms change, okay? And what I mean by the paradigm, it, it's this, right? It is how we view what is right or wrong. It is going to be a, uh, maybe cultural norms that are done. And, you know, I'm a history teacher, and we, we talk about this all the time. I mean, there are different ages to man, right? There is an age of the Catholic Church, which is extremely dogmatic. And then there was a push-up against that age, or a push-up against that paradigm. And it was the age of the enlightenment, of science, of reason. And then within that age of science and reason, right in between the two, it was a Protestant Reformation. There are these different ages to history, and there are different patterns and ages to the eternal plan of the Lord. And what's happening right now is the earth, I'm not saying it's good, um, the earth is trying to push us into a second paradigm. This is why, for part of the reason, I believe that many of us and the earth is experiencing things. We're experiencing elements of, of chaos, uh, elements of uncertainty, elements of anxiety, and a lot of tension. So, and I know I've said this from the pulpit uh, a couple times, but I really want you to get this. All of the different things, all the weird things, all the current events, all the tensions, all the anxiety, all of the, the pushback with politics, race, government policies, all of these things that have been happening are not the things, they are the manifestations of an undercurrent thing that is happening. And that is the earth is trying, the spirit of the world is trying to bring forth a new paradigm. When that's happening, we see these certain events that are being made manifest. Okay? That's what's happening right now. Okay? Now, okay, fine, Dave. Um, that's what's going on. But 
really what, what is the notion behind this paradigm shift is this, right? Slowly, what's happening is an attempt to reset. Attempt to reset everything. When I mean an attempt to reset everything, I mean everything. Because the purpose of the reset is really to bring forth a new narrative. That's what's happening on earth right now. That's what's trying to happen. Okay? And that's why things are the way they are right now. The narrative. What do I mean by the narrative? I mean what you believe. I mean what you think. I mean how you act. Um, it's been said, he who controls the narrative, well, they control the narrative. Uh, what, 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 I'm, what I mean by this is if, if there are forces and there are demonic forces that are trying to, to determine the narrative of how the earth operates and how people think, how people act, and actually how people perceive information. Um, as believers, uh, we don't control people. But we need to state the truth of the gospel and the narrative of that gospel. But here's the thing, and this is, this is, this is the, the, the part of being a pastor. Um, in order to do that, we ourselves need to know the narrative first. Um, I have not been on this earth very long, more than some and less than others. But I have never seen anything like this. Like I said, I'm a history teacher. I think the, the closest thing that we could get, I think, uh, would be the paradigm shift that occurred uh, between the 1950s and the 70s, meaning the 60s. Those people that are old enough to really remember that time, I mean, we're talking drastic, dramatic, different ways to perceive everything, right? You, you're a teenager in the 50s, uh, and if you, you know, went into a, a, a coma and you woke up in 1970, you'd be like, what planet am I on? The radical 60s? Why are they radical? Because paradigms are changing. Some of the paradigms in the 60s that changed were good. For example, you know, civil rights, feminism, the social, economic, and political equality of females to males. Those are, those are biblical standards, right? But there are a lot of things that happen that are not biblical, right? And, and that's what happens, okay? And that's what occurred. And so I have never seen anything like this. I'm sure many of you have not. And what do I mean by change in narrative? It's unbelievable the things that we are hearing. Uh, for example, one, uh, the narrative of family. Do you know that there are several congressmen, congresspeople, I should say, who literally are saying uh, that we should stop having children? Like, I don't, I mean, if you watch the news, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily say their name on the microphone, but um, they literally are saying that it is your responsibility not to have children due to climate change. And the, 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 the population of the planet is going to be too large, so you really should make your own decision and not have children. Like, has anyone heard that or no? Yeah, I mean... You know, China is, you know, China is, is a country that's been doing it for decades, but now it's, it's, it's a vocalization here. 
I, 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 you know, I, you know, I was in, in the classroom teaching high school kids. I asked, how many kids here want to have kids? I'm not kidding. There's like two or three kids that raise their hand out of 30. It's a narrative, right? It's your responsibility not to add to the warming of the climate and overpopulation, then therefore you should not have children. I mean, that, that's a whole other... The, the, I'm not saying that you have to have children. Nowhere, nowhere in the scriptures to say that you have to have children, but taking away a, a, a godly principle of, of, of being fruitful and multiplying on the earth and, 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 and all of that being taken away. Uh, and we know that the family, the family unit, uh, is really a microcosm and a paradigm of the eternal plan of God, right? And so there is wanting to take that away. It's unbelievable. Male and female. I mean, there's literally a change of paradigm of what is a male, what is a female? Is it chromosome? Is it the DNA structures? Is it a social construct by which society has developed these things? Now, we laugh and we giggle, but I'm telling you, I, you know, I say this often, I don't mean to, be, to come off sounding any form of arrogance, but I am in the trenches of this. You have no idea how hard this is being unveiled. You have no clue if you're not in a school. It is unbelievable, the paradigm shift that is attempting to occur. Okay? Now, oh, fine, you know, we could talk about that, but, you know, look, man, it's, it's time for the church to get serious, too. You know, I love all of you. I really do. Um, some of you are dear friends of mine, but look, there's, there's, there's something serious going on at, in the Bride of Messiah. There literally are, there, there are plenty of believers who are male that do not know what it means or how you are to act as a biblical standard of being a male. There are women in the church at large that do not understand what it is to be a woman in a biblical sense, not in a, in, in, in a, in a, uh, a de degrading way, not in a controlling way. I'm not even going close to preaching that, man. I mean, you know, no, we're, we're talking about like, you know, you ever read about Deborah? You know, you ever read about Priscilla in the New Testament? I'm not talking about like these meek, you know, slaves or something. I'm talking about like a biblical mantle of femininity and a biblical mantle of masculinity. It's, it's, it's a serious, serious thing. It really is. Um, there, are, there are people on earth, of course, and even in the, in the church at large that, you know, don't really understand and know how to raise children. Like, these are things that we, the bride of Messiah, are supposed to be showing the world. And the church itself doesn't even really completely understand it, in my opinion, when I'm looking at it. And that's not necessarily a judgment. That is, hopefully, a Holy Ghost conviction. Like, it, we need to know and live out our own narrative before we go and teach others. And now is a time when the earth is, is quaking and trying to understand, how do you discipline a child in the right way? Um, what does it mean to be a male in this world of toxic masculinity? What does it mean to be a female, to have certain feminine attributes, but it's also possible to be a mother and a career person? How do we do all of these things? What's the biblical model for that? When we don't have people in the church at large that understand that or are walking it out, how on earth are we going to show the world that? 
And more importantly, our children are being indoctrinated and taught by the schools a different narrative. A completely different narrative. And so I feel like the Lord is just saying is that we need to dig in deep. We need to dig in deep as a church. And I believe, to be quite honest, uh, the church at large across the planet needs an education. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Wow, speaking truth in love. Well, here's truth and love. For a long time now, the charismatic church has been absorbed with the five-fold giftings of ministry, but have not been absorbed and uplifted two of them, pastoring and teaching. People want to hear the next apostle. People want to see the great healing ministry. People want to contend in the Holy Ghost, fire of heaven. These are all wonderful things. But my experience of being saved since the age of six is that there has actually been a degradation of the church's ability to want to be pastored and want to be taught. It's a big difference, man. Learn like, oh, I want to go to X conference and learn about X thing. There is teaching there, 100%. But the goal of those things is, is so that meets a different endpoint. I'm, I'm talking, I think the scriptures are saying you're like teaching, like teaching like what it's like and how you would act and be as a person on earth. Let alone the healings and the miracles, like, Look, well, I personally will get geared up to go to a conference to learn about how to heal the sick in Jesus' name. I'm going to get excited about that, personally. I am not probably going to get excited nor spend the money to go to a conference to learn about how do you become a good biblical father. How do you interact in the workplace? Let me teach you that. What is the biblical teaching on food, not going to that conference. What's the biblical teaching on finances? Probably not going to that conference. Teaching. In my opinion, and I could be wrong, I don't think it's been uplifted. But it's a mandate from the scriptures. So what I'm saying here is in, in our circles, there's been a big focus on certain Worship, prayer, healing, deliverance. Am I for them? Of course! But you know, you, you, your, your biggest strengths can sometimes be your big, biggest weaknesses. When we're focusing on, on those things, why is, why is 70% of the big C church males addicted to pornography? 70%. Why is the divorce rate about 50% in the church? Like, 
you could have whatever anointing, fire, and healing ministry you got, but if you're addicted to pornography, we got a problem here. We got to redirect the ship, okay? This is what I'm talking about. These types of things, like we need to, we need to get it back again. And so what I'm going to uh, do here is, uh, you know, we're going to have a, uh, we're, we're going to be doing a sermon series. It's going to be called like something about like the narrative. And, and what's going to happen here is we're going to, I know it may not be real snazzy for some of you because we've been, we've been, we've been given a, a pill of adrenaline and charismania. And so it may not get you all pumped up, but like we're going to, we're next good month or so, we're going to do a sermon series on, okay, let's, let's knock it out. What are the biblical narratives of family? What does it look like? What is the biblical narrative to masculinity? What is the biblical narrative of femininity? What is the biblical narrative of how we engage and teach in, in our children? What's the biblical narrative on finances? What's the biblical narrative of how we already interact with the people at work? We need to do these things, and the reason why we need to do these is because the earth is trying to change a paradigm. They're trying to change what family is. They're trying to change what malehood is or masculinity is. They're trying to change what womanhood or femininity is. They're trying to change all of it, and we're asleep. And the church can be asleep because our eyes are on, for lack of a better phrase, please forgive me, a sexier type of thing. The sexier type of thing is how do you heal someone? How do you raise someone from the dead? It's not real romantic or edgy or enticing to be like, this is how you raise your children. <laughs> but we have to do it. We have to do it. I'm telling you, the role of teaching in the church today is, is more important now than ever before because it's been neglected for so long. I mean, who here has come to faith, and, have, and then after you came to faith, the church that you were part of now had you do some type of, like, discipleship and growth of a believer and, you know, have, <clears throat> excuse me, have a, uh, 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 a new believer's class on this is what it means to be a male. This is what it means to be a female. This is how you raise your children. This is how we engage with food. This is how we engage with alcohol. This is how we engage with these things. Look, I'm telling you right now, a good, healthy church would be doing that. It's, it's not just the prophecy. Oh, I want prophecy. And it's not just healing. Oh, I want healing. And it's not just deliverance. Guys, we're having a deliverance night and a conference. I want those things. But you need to have the full gospel. There are needs in this day and hour in the midst of the greatest paradigm shift that I have ever witnessed, a re-coming to the fundamentals of what it means to be a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a child, all of it. Because I'm telling you, the spirit of the world is really, really doing a good job at ushering in a new narrative. We can't drink that wine. Hosea 4.6, a nice rebuke from the Lord. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you may be no priest to me. Because you have your God's law, I will also forget your children. 
Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. What's the new wine? What's the harlot? What's the wooden idol? I think one of the biggest idols right now and, you know, you don't have to come back to this church. It's okay. Um, I, would say one of the, I would say one of the, one of the, one of the biggest idols right now uh, in the United States of America in the paradigm shift is the United States government. They got me. They're going to take care of me. What they say, I will do. King Asa. King Asa. I probably haven't really read about King Asa. A really creepy verse. He got sick, and it says that he first sought the doctors. And then he died. And it says he went to sleep with his, with his fathers. He was in the earth. What was the sin of King Asa? The first thing he did was seek the earthly authorities. He didn't first go to the Lord. We believe in doctors here. 100%. Go to the doctor. Go to the doctor. Before going to the doctor, go to the Lord and pray for wisdom and understanding. Right? It's very easy to make a harlot out of these things. And I'm telling you, the harlot is loving it. Because you know what the harlot ultimately wants? The harlot, the whore, as it says in the King James, what does she ultimately want? What she ultimately wants is to be wed. Hear me now. The new wine of the harlot on planet Earth. What does she want in the spirit? She wants to be wed to you. She wants you to be in covenant with her instead of covenant with God. That's what the whole book of Hosea is about. The harlot's not just a harlot. The harlot is trying to pull you in, pull you in, pull you in so you could be married and unified. And so what's really happening in, 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 in what I believe, and may, some of you have, have, have come across this and, and heard of this, is, is this. There, there is like I've never seen it before, what some people are calling a mass hypnosis or what's known as a mass formation. This is, this is the paradigm that's trying to be released on earth. And what I mean by this is essentially groupthink. This is what's happened. This is the narrative, right? Everyone is to think the same. Everyone is to agree on this. And the authorities, the wooden idols, shall speak to you and tell you what is truth and you are to comply and be a part of it, and we're going to scare the hell out of you so that you do it. So that the next thing that comes down the pike, they can do it easier. And you'll be more willing. And we will shame you, and we will ridicule you, and we will say that you're a Neanderthal, and you're anti this and anti that. We will do everything humanly possible so that you bend. Okay? That is... The narrative. And so when you're a kid in school and you raise your hand, you say, well, my family and I believe that a marriage is between a male and a woman. The kids in the class, the teacher, the principals will say, you can't say that. This is what we're talking about. So we got to get ready. Okay, how 
on earth does this relate to Job? The story of Job. We've got Job, his three friends, and, of course, his wife. Uh, the great uh, r- rabbi of the Middle Ages, a guy by the name of Maimonides, uh, was the first to point out that each of the three friends in the book of Job are there to show three different theological points. We're not going to read over their theological points. You can do that on your own. But you have to take my word for it for now. Elphaz. If you take a look at the writings of Elphaz and how he responds to Job, like Job, you know, why is Job going through all of this? Elphaz is going to say, well, the reason, Job, you're going through all of this is because you're being punished. You're being punished because of your sins. Next friend, Bildad. Bildad says, no, 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 Job, now it's my turn to speak. I'm speaking, and Bildad, you're being, this is happening to you because it is a test. It is a test to receive an even greater reward. The Lord wants to see how you're going to handle this situation. And if you handle this situation in the right way, the Lord is going to bestow even more abundance upon you. That's what's happening. Then, Zophar says, nah, Job, the reason why you're going through this is God's arbitrary will. He just, he's just playing a game. Now, you know, I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at Maimonides, someone who wrote about such things, gosh, uh, 600 years ago, 500 years ago. Uh, and uh, you're like, wow, how would the church handle the book of Job today? Man, I have heard every possible solution to understand the suffering of Job. Every single one, you know. But I think many of us have missed it. I think that one of the real lesson or one of the big lessons of Job is which narrative are you going to believe, Job? Your wives? Your friends? Your own mind? Which narrative are you believing, Job? You remember this whole thing started with Satan, right? Satan goes to heaven and says, ah, the reason why Job is following you is because you've, you've given him so much blessing. God doesn't, do, God doesn't do all of this to Job. God doesn't do it. God allows Satan to do things to Job. Satan shows up, but interesting enough, Satan, the accuser, leaves the story of Job. Why? Satan just plants the seed, and now Satan goes away and allows Job to be at war with his own thoughts. Which narrative are you going to believe? Now, this is very interesting, and I'm trying to do this to show you a change of paradigm of thinking. In the beginning of the book of Job, Job goes from a man living in abundance who is righteous and is exalting God. Halfway through Job, Job is now questioning God. He's, in, in Job chapter 7, he literally says, God, why have I become the target of you? Give me an answer, God. 
Man, I think about my prayer life. Give me an answer, God. Why have you made me a target? Give me an answer, Job chapter 7. Well, praise the Lord. And uh, I guess we'll have Jamie come on up now, I think. No, not yet. Not yet. I got a, I got a little bit more. There's another guy that shows up. I don't know, when I've been taught Job, I, 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 people talk about Job, they talk about Satan, they talk about his wife, they talk about his three friends. But I haven't heard too much about this guy, Elihu. Which is interesting in itself. Which is weird. But let's take a look at this really interesting guy, Elihu. Job chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job, right? So the three guys, the three friends now give their take on what's going on with Job. And now they stop. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. You hear this. Job was righteous in his own eyes. Maybe the church is righteous in its own eyes. There's a self-proclaimed righteousness of a way of thinking by Job. And now Elihu shows up. Listen to the words. Verse 2. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Berakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. One of his friends has a wrath and is aroused. His wrath was aroused because Job justified himself rather than justifying God. Elihu, it's so full of wrath towards his friend because his friend Job is listening to the wrong narrative. You're listening to your own narrative. You're listening to your own friends. This is very powerful, so please, I know this is a little bit of a different type of teaching this week, maybe, so please plug in. Job 32, verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered Job and said this, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. I'm younger. You're older. You should know more than me. So I would shut up. But there is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Verse 18. For I am full of words. The spirit is within me, and it compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak, and I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. Verse 12, look, Job, in this, you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than men. Why do you contend with him? 
verse 29. Behold, or rather, sorry, verse 27. 33. I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. Behold, God works all these things, twice in fact, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. What we have here is, is an act of repentance. Take a look at chapter 35, Elihu speaking to Job again. Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? Chapter 37 now, verse 23. Elihu now really just kind of unveils it all, and he says, As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. What is Elihu doing? He's restoring the biblical narrative. How dare you question God? How dare you say that you are so righteous that these things can't happen to you? How dare you, Job, think that you are so righteous that nothing could befall you? He says, God is almighty and his ways are above any man's ways. Like Job didn't have access to heaven. Job didn't see God and Satan squaring off. Job didn't see that he was an archetype and a foreshadowing of Jesus. He didn't see any of that. All he did was focus on the trial and the difficulty and tribulation, trying to make sense out of it. He didn't see the internal biblical narrative that Job is going to be an archetype for all future to see Jesus before Jesus is incarnate, suffering for no real reason. Well, what was the reason? God and Satan were having a sparring on. But lo and behold, what happens here is this, in verse 42. Job finally responds after Elihu, and then also after God speaks to Job. Uh, Jamie, if you come on down, please. Job responds to God and says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Job goes to God, he says, I've heard you. But now through all of this, I see you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, bringing this together here. I feel like the Lord, through the book of Job, is speaking to me personally. I believe the Lord is speaking to you guys right now, and it's this. Which narrative are you listening to? Job gets three different narratives and then a fourth. But he gets three narratives from his friends. You know, friends. Friends who have your best interest in mind. There are a lot of people on earth right now who claim they have your best interest in mind. They're promoting a narrative to change your paradigm in thinking. But I'm telling you... Um, like Job, you, ne you need to listen to Elihu. That's what you need to do. 
Now, this isn't a, a sermon on, on, on sickness, and it's not a sermon on healing and, and trial and tribulation. Although, that's what most people gravitate towards when they see the book of Job. They try to make sense out of it. Which is so funny. Modern-day theologians are trying to make sense out of the pain and suffering of Job. They are doing the same thing that the first three friends do, and they miss the whole freaking point of it. The whole point of it is Elihu. How dare you question God? You do not know his ways. His narrative is so much higher than yours. But so many people are trying to figure out the book of Job. But the book of Job tells us. Stop trying to figure it all out and trying to make yourself righteous and you deserve X, Y, and Z. What you deserve is that you are a son of God and his ways are so much higher than yours. He is doing something. So put your trust and faith in him. No matter what's going on, that needs to be the narrative that you hold on to. That's the point of the book of Job. No matter what you're going through, God has a plan. And that plan is much higher than your understanding. His narrative is bigger than yours. I believe that we need to listen to the narrative of Elihu. We need to listen to the biblical narrative in all things. In fact, you and I need to be Elihu's to the world. When everyone else is trying to figure every little thing and every little dot and jot and tittle, as the word says, trying to figure out life, it's like, God is so much bigger. His plan and his narrative for earth is so much grander and bigger than what our minds are understanding. Who is this guy Elihu anyway? He just shows up towards the end of Job and then disappears. He's never said of again. Why is Elihu's narrative so much different than the other three friends? Job lives in the land of Uz. He lives in the area of Ur. What does this mean? You see, Abraham, before Job, left the land of Ur. He left the land of Ur because God, the one true God, told him to leave. So Abraham goes and essentially takes the mantle and the anointing of God with him to the promised land. You got to understand this. Job is not a Hebrew. He is not a son of Abraham. Guess what? I kid you not. Elphaz is not a son of Abraham. He's not con connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Bildad, not a son. Zophar, not a son. But Elihu, then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because Job justified his narrative more than God's narrative. Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram is a descendant of Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother. Abraham's brother Nahor left the land of Ur with Abraham. 
Don't miss this. This is a powerful principle. The only one who could tell the world and tell Job the narrative of God was from a family that left the land of the narrative of Ur, who stood with Abraham and walked with Abraham. And the family split up, that is true. Nahor decides to go one place. But the point of the matter is this, he's a part of Abraham's family. And he leaves the narrative of Ur, when Job and everyone else is still living and residing in that old way of thinking. You cannot believe the narrative of Ur today. We need to show the world the narrative of the gospel. And when Elihu speaks to Job, Job's response is, I have finally have seen God. Do you hear this? Elihu proclaiming a narrative. The real narrative. Allows Job to see God. Why don't we stand? Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breath out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Well, I'm just going to pray right now against any distraction that is happening in the spirit. Right now. Some of you have not had the honor yet of coming face to face and staring down the narrative of the world. But I'm telling you, some of us have. Some of us have to do it every single day. Your time was coming too. I'm telling you, you're not going to get out of this one. Your time is going to be coming. When you will be faced with the second paradigm. You will be faced with the reset. Your children are going to be faced with it. Your children's children are going to be faced with it. And it's during these times that we're going to have to really dig in deep. I will not curse God. I will not question His ways. I know that the planet is expected to hit 9 billion people. But He said in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. He says that children are a, a beautiful thing from the hand of the Lord. I know that you think, I know that you think that you're not ready to have a child, so you should have an abortion. But, but the ancient Israelites, 
were, were cursed because they were passing their children through the fires of Molech. I know you don't feel that you're ready, but the scriptures say that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and that he knew me in my mother's womb. And I know that science is trying to say this, but the word says this. I know, I know that you're saying. I know that you're saying that there's no difference between males and females. I know that you're saying that masculinity is horrible. No, the word says that that's a beautiful thing. That God made males and females, both unique and beautiful in his eyes. Sorry for drawing this out, guys. I just, I'm, I'm, oh, I, don't, I don't know what it is. It's, oh, I know what it is. It's the Holy Spirit. I just, I feel. I feel overwhelmed right now. I know it's getting a little late. I understand that. prophetically difficult times I, I I see faces I see people in our church that are going to be faced with very difficult times and faced with incredibly hard choices the Lord is saying you're going to have to stand like Elihu you have to stand like one of the family members of Abraham And say, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with the narrative of the Bible. I'm not going to agree with the narrative of the earth, or a narrative of an earthly government, or a narrative of an earthly school district, or a narrative of an earthly corporation. But I pray right now, strength. I pray strength. Strength and grace right now. Lord, I pray that you provide the right friends. Lord, I pray, I pray that you provide the right narratives. I pray that you provide the right counsel and the right wisdom and the right teaching. The ways appear righteous to a man, but his heart is corrupt. Purify our minds, purify the way we think. 
burn up the narrative of the world. Come on, burn up the narrative of the world. Burn up that narrative that's in that textbook. Burn up that narrative that's on the television. For some of you, burn up that narrative of what your parents are telling you. What your parents are saying is the right way to do things. I don't mean this for the teenagers. I mean this for the older ones. Burn up the narrative of what the in-laws are saying or what's expected and what is right. And, but go to the Lord. Burn, 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 burn the narrative. Burn up the narrative of the descendants of Ur. Let the narrative of the promised land come. So to invite you down, if you want to receive prayer on this topic, we're, we're praying this topic right now. If, if, if there are things in your life, narratives, that mass formation, we're talking about this, this, this feeling, this belief of, of just doing what the world says. If, if you need to get free of that, if you're having this Job kind of exploration in your mind, in your spirit right now, we're going to come down, we're going to pray fire to burn away the narrative of the world. Come on, we want the sons and daughters to be made manifest. We want the love of God to wash away all wrongdoing. We want the disciples of Christ to go out and cast nets and pick up fish and show the world a better way. That your blood speaks a better word. Well, I don't know how to end this, so <laughs> come on down if you want prayer. Please, please, communication, just go out to the lobby. I just, I really feel a thickness of the Lord that he wants, he wants to release things right now. Have a wonderful week. See you next Sunday with our first biblical narrative of understanding and teaching.